me. Lord God, what a privilege it is to cease from our work and gather together as your people as we have learned so much through this travel through Romans 3 and 4 this month. What a great God you are in justifying us through Jesus. Lord, as this final word is brought forth for this series, I ask that you would assist us by your grace to see you afresh, to see you alive, that we wouldn't just come to church this morning, but we would come to meet you, worship you, and know you, so that we would be empowered tomorrow morning to live the lives out in our community as we have been called to do. For we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. The Canners were the family next door to me growing up, and they had this worn-out book, Guinness Book of World Records. And they used it as, as, as uh, bullets against me all the time. <laughs> you know, I'd walk into the house, and they'd say, Hey, Gene, what's the world record for the world's longest eyelash? <laughs> hey, Gene, what's the record for the largest yarn ball? Hey, Gene, what's the record for the world's oldest woman to actually have given birth? Actually, in the 70s, that was a 57-year-old woman. I, you know, I, I, I would get sick of this because they were just using it as one upsmanship. So I would say, who cares? Who's got the fastest time in Major League Baseball from home plate to first base? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mickey Mantle, 3.1 seconds. Nobody's beaten it, by the way. But you know, there was a latest Guinness Book of World Records woman who's given birth in 2016, a 72-year-old woman in India by in vitro fertilization gave birth to a baby. Now, think of India, you know. It is shameful in India, just like it was in ancient times in the Bible, to not bring forth a child. And she just couldn't take it. So she paid great costs, and she had a baby at 72. Well, that's the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> but, au contraire, she's not the oldest woman to ever be given birth. Amen? Amen? For today, in the passage in Romans, it focuses on a true world record of the oldest mother in the world and the world-changing implication of Sarah's giving birth to the promised child, Isaac. I invite you to open up with me to your Bibles. Please turn with your, me and your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. If you haven't been with us, Paul has brilliantly stated his argument for salvation by grace through, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, which we know as justification. In Romans chapter 3, culminating in the summary statement in verse 28 of Romans, and I'm quoting Romans uh, 3.28 from the Living Bible, we are saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things we do. All right. And so last week, we learned the greatest example of salvation by grace and faith in Christ alone. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 is our father, Abraham. And so this week, here in the latter parts of chapter 4, Paul draws a conclusion that's extremely helpful for each and every one of us in our daily lives 
in relating this record-setting birth of Isaac. So Paul explains the nature of true faith by describing what went on inside Abraham in his mind. It's as if Paul is a mind reader. You know, he just climbs in and he makes these incredible observations of Abraham's faith. And what we see are three great truths for us. Number one, the object of Abraham's faith. Two, the obstacles to his faith, which we all face. And three, the objectives of his faith. All right? The object of his faith, the obstacles of his faith, and the objective of his faith. So let's look at these, shall we? First of all, the object of Abraham's faith is, is quite easy to discern, looking at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Uh, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist is clearly the object of Abraham's faith. And it's vital, ladies and gentlemen, that you understand this point. You may have great faith, but if you're aiming at the wrong faith, you're going to miss the target, therefore you have the wrong faith. Some have had a strong faith on thin ice and never lived to tell about it. All right? They actually died by faith. To use another example, I may leave church this afternoon, hop in my car, and have all the faith that this car is going to get me home. But if some hoodlums come along and take the lug nuts off my tires, uh, the wheels are going to fall off and I'm not going to make it. On the other hand, if I have little faith in my car and I drive it with great fear and trepidation that some hoodlums have actually touched my lug nuts on my car, <laughs> and they haven't, you know, it's my faith might be weak, but the object of my faith is very strong. And we conclude from this text that Abraham's faith was not exemplary because he had an intrinsic strong faith. It was the object of his faith that was strong. See, we all have faith. The decisive issue is, where do you place that faith? Where do you place that trust? And our lives show forth that trust. Abraham's faith was in God who gives life to the dead. And so there's two great truths that Paul is bringing out for us that we recognize in his object of great faith that we all need to understand. First of all, Abraham grasped that God gives life to the dead. There was no understanding of resurrection in Genesis 17. You know, there was no full doctrine of giving life to the dead at this stage. But we know that Abraham understood resurrection because if you read later in chapter 22, when he's called to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham believed that if he even did carry this act through, God would raise Isaac from the dead. We know that through not only Genesis 22.5, but Hebrews 11.19. Secondly, we know that Abraham believed in a God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, God creates something from nothing. In Latin, it's ex nihilo. You know, perhaps Paul is suggesting here of God's restoration of Abraham and Sarah's procreation abilities 
Because as we all know from this story, for all intents and purposes, God created Isaac ex nihilo, out of nothing, because you had a 90-year-old mother and a 100-year-old man. Now, Abraham's view of God as the object of his faith was absolutely immense and awesome. And this gigantic concept dominated Abraham's entire experience of faith. And it can make all the difference in us, too, ladies and gentlemen. Robert Wilson was the great, about 100 years ago, professor of theology at Princeton Seminary. And like many seminaries, graduates are invited back to preach at the chapel to the students that are at the seminary. They may go back. And so one of his students came back 15 years later. And old Dr. Wilson would come down and sit in the front row and take his glasses and put them at the end of his nose and just listen with his Bible on his lap. Sermon was over when this one particular student was done. And Dr. Wilson said these words to him. He said, if you come back again, I will not be here. I only come once to hear my boys preach. And I am glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry is like. And his former student said, what do, you, what do you mean by this? He said, well, some men have a little God, and they're always in trouble with God. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the Scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, so therefore I call them little Godders. <laughs> then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You, my friend, have a great God. And he will bless your ministry. God bless you. And he turned and old Doc Wilson walked out of the chapel. See, if our view of God is exalted as Abraham's, if we know that God is the God who raises the dead, if we believe God is the God who creates something out of absolutely nothing, you're a big godder. And the object of your faith is correct. Because you can't get this wrong and be a little godder. As so many in our culture do. So the touch point of this point for your daily life tomorrow as you drive back to work, students as you go back to school, retirees as you get up and go about your day, is, number one, is Jesus Christ the object of your faith, or is it some delusion of your own creation? And two, how do you really view that object? Is he able to raise the dead? Is he able to create something out of nothing? For that's the God who is. That's Abraham's God. That's his object. Next, we see the obstacles to Abraham's faith. Verses 18 through 20. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. You see, there are two obstacles that Paul mentions here to Abraham's faith. The obvious one is believing that him and Sarah could biologically have a child. Hello, 9100 doesn't happen. It's too good to be true. It's impossible. But the less obvious obstacle that's stated here was the staggering nature of the promise. His descendants would number as the stars. His descendants would be like the dust on the ground. Talk about too good to be true and too difficult to believe. He couldn't believe this, but the first part of verse 20 touches what Abraham truly believes. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's pretty incredible. He trusted and he had faith. I mean, imagine it. 85th birthday goes by. 90th birthday go by. 95th birthday goes by. Sarah goes to DQ to buy the birthday cake. <laughs> he can't, he's old iron lungs trying to breathe out 95 freaking candles. <sighs> really? No. He believed. He kept the faith about this fantastic promise that God was going to bring a child through him and Sarah, his wife. Now, let's not forget, Abraham wasn't perfect, right? We walked through Genesis together a few years back. This is the guy who tried to work around God and said, uh, Sarah goes, here, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and force God's promise. That's what we do, right? We do it our way when it doesn't work the way God wants it to. And he also dropped faith when everybody saw how beautiful his wife is. Tell him that you're my sister. <laughs> Wonderful man of integrity. What's my point in sharing that? I want you to know that Abraham is just like you and me. Just like you and me. What's different about him is that he heard the audible voice of God. Okay? We have the word. That's what we need. But the greatest obstacle, really, beyond just the great promise that he has, is this obstacle of him and Sarah having a baby. He was impotent, and Sarah, to use the, the, the vocabulary of my almost 30-year-old daughter, her ovaries are very dusty. <laughs> it isn't going to happen. All right? Sarah's 90, and he's 100, and, but yet, the very first verse of chapter 17, verse 1, God comes back to Abraham, I am God Almighty. I will do this. So Abraham took every relevant factor into consideration, including his worn-out carcass, which he fully understood, and he believed that God would do what he promised he would do. Now, some people are under the impression that, when a per impression that when a person has faith, he ignores the facts. And they see facts and faith as mutually exclusive. Kent Hughes states that faith without reason is fideism. Fideism is faith independent of facts. It's a philosophical belief. And those things, are faith and reason, are hostile to one another. 
Other people believe that reason without faith, in which we call that rationalism. But in practice, there must be no reduction of faith to reason. Likewise, there must be no reduction of reason to faith. Biblical faith is a collection of the two. It's a mixture. Abraham did not take a leap of faith. What Abraham did was collect the data of the impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and decided that if God was God, nothing is impossible. And so Genesis 17, when you look at the word used for God there, this is El Shaddai, uh, meaning he's the God of bounty. He's the God of reproduction. And amidst the involuntary laughter of Sarah, he believed. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall of this conversation when Abraham came back into the tent? Hey, my love, I'm home. Where have you been? Oh, I've been out having my personal worship time. Oh, great. How was it? Phenomenal. Spoke with God. (laughs) And it was quite a conversation. Well, what did he tell you? You're going to be a mama. (laughs) He believed God. And we know exactly what he believed despite the obstacles, and he believed that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls the existence of things that do not exist. In other words, Abraham's a big godder. And he, in hope, he believed against hope. You could flip that around. That is against all human hope. So Abraham believed and so became the father of the nations, ladies and gentlemen. Charles Wesley caught this principle in a great hymn where he says, faith, mighty faith, the promises, and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities, and cries, it shall be done. So in, in applying this for Monday morning, young people, adults, retirees, uh, if God is who he says he is, and he is, None of his promises will fail because he forgets us or our situation is beyond his power. The problem, if we're honest with ourselves, is that many of us keep in the back of our minds suspicions and what we say we really believe about God's power is not really true. For all our lip service about our trust to God, we rely chiefly, really, on what we can do for ourselves. We try to, okay, manufacture a baby by providing a maidservant, like Hagar was. Perhaps some of us this morning need to take deeper possession of the truths of what we really believe about God. And a good first step of that is to see how long your worry list is. Okay? So, we've seen the object of Abraham's faith. We've seen the obstacles of the faith, which we all deal with. And finally, we see the objectives of his faith, and there are two of them, starting with the second half of verse 20. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. 
See, in this connection, we should emphasize that God is never glorified in a believer's life apart from the faith that they exercise individually and corporately. A full reliance upon God. Now, Abraham's life glorified God as, as few lives have ever demonstrated throughout the ages. And some argue convincingly that verse 21 is one of the best definitions of faith as it describes Abraham as one fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. May we glorify God in the same way. Let's take him at his word. And the second objective of Abraham's faith was his righteousness. Verse 22 concludes the description by saying, Faith was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning that he is declared righteous by God. Right standing, perfect, holy, imputed, clothed in his righteousness. And not just that, it's personal. Demonstrating that God has a relationship, desires a relationship with his imperfect child, Abraham. And he loves him. So faith that makes one righteous before God perceives the immensity of God who creates something from nothing and gives life to the dead. And so next, it is faith that, that does not deny the obstacles that we've been speaking of and evaluates them in light of God's word and God's power. And ultimately, what this does for the believer, it brings a great full assurance that what God has promised in our lives through his word, he will carry out and perform. And that faith is reckoned as righteousness for each and every one of us. We'll be righteous before God. And so here, therefore, ladies and gentlemen, is the relevancy of this point. Verse 23, but the words that was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone but for ours also. We can have a righteousness too. Promises as staggering as those made to Abraham are ours. We are not just God's justified, righteous people. We are his beloved children. Loved by God. Called his own. Chosen, empowered, equipped, no matter your personality, no matter, you know, your IQ, your SAT scores, thank God. The reality is that we, each and every one of us, are valued as beloved children, able to call God, Heavenly Father, Daddy. We can have that intimate walk with God. Because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't just come to faith in Jesus Christ so you can go to heaven. You come to faith in Jesus Christ because forever you will get Jesus Christ. In this kind of relationship, no matter how relationships have failed you throughout your life or how good they've been in your life, you'll never have a relationship that's as faithful to you as God and Jesus. And he will be there for you forever. And if you don't want him, you won't get him. People go, how can a living God send someone to hell? Well, you don't want him, right? No, well, going to heaven be hell for you. You don't want him, that's all right. That's your call. I'm sad. But don't go there. God wants us. 
in relationship. And this is delightful and exciting. And Paul describes it as 2 Corinthians 4 as an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's what we're to believe. We're to put our faith in God who raised Jesus Christ for our justification. That which Abraham believed and that which we are to believe are very, very similar. He believed it before Christ. We believed it post-Christ. But it's the same salvation by grace through faith in God. And so therefore, friends, how do we perceive the object of our faith? God. I pray, I beg that you place your trust in the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, the God of the resurrection. He is real, he is there, he has proven himself. Secondly, how do you do with those obstacles to your faith? Hopefully, with reason and with faith. Mixing them together, weighing the human possibilities against the divine impossibility of God breaking his word, and thus, thus deciding if God is God, nothing is impossible for God. And finally, what are the objectives of your faith? To glorify God and enjoy him forever as Abraham? Recognizing that it's not just for Abraham, we can dust off the dusty old pages of this book and it comes alive for us because it's for me, it's for you. See, Genesis 17, Abraham was 99 years old and he said, boy, you're going to get a circumcision. It was a ceremony after that that every male child in the Jewish nation would receive this for the whole family on the eighth day. A bloody ceremony signifying that this is God's covenant child. And from that point on, they were to go forth and be a blessing in the world, and they didn't. And they weren't. There were some. But God came and said in another bloody ceremony, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. And this isn't just for my nation Israel. It's for the world. And Jesus Christ coming and dying upon the Calvary's hill and trusting in that work, not that I'm just a nice person, although we should be nice. But the question is, how nice do you have to be? You know, Jesus said you have to be perfect as your Father in heaven. I can't be perfectly nice all the time. You know? It doesn't come down to how good a husband or how good a wife or how good child to my parents that I am or how good a provider I am. It's all based on have I placed my full trust in this Jesus Christ alone because that's how much he loves you. And in so doing, not only do I get heaven, I get Jesus forever, and so do you. See, he loves to give himself to a people who always let him down, which is every single one of us beginning with yours truly. So I want you to understand, here's what I'm not saying as we wrap up Romans. 
I'm not asking you to add one more thing to your already busy schedule and to-do list. To have faith alone in Jesus Christ and to be saved by His grace alone through faith alone in this and being alive to God is the new awareness that you carry in your heart with you tomorrow morning as you go back to work and you go about your to-do list. Jesus is with you and in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you truly do receive Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, your to-do list will change. He'll take some things off, and he'll put some things on. But he delights in doing so. But to have faith in Jesus Christ is not just one more box to check. To be a Christian is to be so because he loves you. His eye is upon you. He longs for a relationship with you, moving toward you, saying to your heart, I'm with you. You are my beloved child. And I'm here for you, and I will build a legacy. Look at the stars. Your children will be like that. Follow me. Count them. That's your family. This is your family. He's the object of your worship. When we come here on Sundays, do you come to check the box or you come to meet God? We're here to meet God, as messed up as we are. Each and every one of us, as just as imperfect as we are, he delights in saying, I'm so glad you're here, you of all people. (laughs) You got Gene as your rector, God bless you. No obstacle is too high. (laughs) And therefore, like Abraham, we glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's for me, it's for you, and it's for our neighbors. Every empty seed ought to break our hearts. He has you and I in mind. That Isaac birth, that was some record-setting birth, wasn't it? Because we have a record-setting God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day, grateful that you intervene in our lives and do not leave us to our own devices. We thank you that you spoke to Abraham, a, a, a moon worshiper. I mean, moon worshiper. And yet you called him to yourself. And in Jesus Christ, he is our father, Abraham. We thank you for him Because in him we see us, and we thank you, Lord God, it's not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith is what not only saves us, but gives us everlasting, joyful, abundant life in you, with you, Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that would be our reality, not only today, but tomorrow and throughout our week. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.